Amen. Would you pray with me again? Father, we are grateful for your word, but we're mindful also that it is such a foreign book to us. We're separated from thousands, by thousands of years from the events that it retells and separated by ancient cultures. Father, we need your spirit to be working to give us understanding and to help us with that understanding to give us faith and the courage to live what we learn. Father, we pray that your spirit would be active this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, what I'm about to say, I doubt will come as a surprise to to most of you. If it does, uh, I'm sorry to have to be the one to tell you. But faith is hard. Uh, It can be downright difficult at times. If you've been a a follower of Christ for more than a week, you probably know this. We know it from our, our, our personal experiences at times. I remember one of the first times that faith felt really difficult, really scary to me. And it was just before I was about to get married. Uh, yeah, that's enough right there, right? No, <laughs> uh, I had moved to Chicago about three, week, three weeks before our wedding to start classes at seminary. And I moved there without any job. That's a big deal. Three weeks away from your wedding and you don't know how you're going to provide for your new wife. I mean, by God's grace, she had a job lined up for when she was going to follow me to Chicago. But we knew that that was not going to be enough to live in the expensive city of Chicago. I had to have something. And this was a different kind of experience because I had stepped out by faith for myself before. But here I was stepping out for the two of us, and trusting that God was going to provide everything we needed for us. And that was difficult. Those were kind of difficult conversations to have with your future father-in-law. Yeah, I don't have a job yet, but it was scary. And I had these conversations with God, you know, okay, T minus 21 days, God. All right, T minus 18, 16, 14. God, what are you doing? And how are you going to provide? But we know from experience that faith can be hard. And as you open up the Word of God, you see it there too. And you see people struggling to keep faith, to trust God. The story that we just read from 1 Samuel 8 is a story of Israel's failing faith. They were tired. Uh, Their faith was tired, and they wanted something more concrete, more visible than an invisible God to trust. They wanted a king. They wanted something more tangible, something more normal to trust. Last week, Bob continued the series, Ancient Stories and Contemporary Truths, looking at Samuel's call. When Samuel was in the house of Eli and that voice came, Samuel. It's a great story. A lot has happened between that point and the time that we're looking at now. It's only five chapters in the Bible, but now Samuel's an old man. In chapter four, the Israelites had this brilliant idea to take the Ark of the Covenant with them, the symbol of God's presence with them as a people, into battle, thinking, surely we'll win if the Ark of the Covenant was with us. Turned out quite differently. They were routed, and 
the most important possession for the people of Israel was captured and taken off into the land of Philistia. How do you say that? To the, the city of Ashdod. How about we just say that? The funniest story, and I think the whole Old Testament, comes in chapter 5. Uh, the Philistines carry this Ark of the Covenant into their temple, the temple to Dagon, their God, as kind of a trophy. See, our God, Dagon, is stronger than Yahweh, the people of Israel's God. But when they go into the temple the next morning, Dagon has fallen down. Dagon fall down and go boom. And he's laying down in front of the Ark of the Covenant prostrate. And so they have to call the Dagon lifters to come in and hoist Dagon back up on his feet. And the same thing happens the next day. He falls down. This time his head and his hands fall off. They think we should probably get rid of this Ark now. uh, Because not only does our God keep falling over, but... All the people and all the cities that this ark keeps going to keep breaking out in these horrific tumors. So let's give this thing back to the people of Israel. And they send it back, but they don't send it back empty-handed, as it were. They decide to send a peace offering back. What do you send? Well, let's send golden mice and golden tumors Makes perfect sense. I don't know. It happened, though. It Right there in chapter 6. During this time, Samuel has become, taken up that mantle of being Israel's judge. And he's ruling over the people. Administering justice. In chapter 7, you see him intervening for the people. He's calling for a reform slash revival. And the people of Israel gather together to say, we're going to follow God solely. With a united heart. Not pursuing God and Baals and Ashtaras. We're going to pursue God only. But while they're gathered at this kind of revival meeting for Israel, the Philistines gather also, ready to attack. The Israelites look up and they they see the Philistines there and they say, Samuel, cry out to God for us. And Samuel does. He prays. In chapter 7 it says, God thundered from heaven and threw the Philistines into a confusion. Israel routs them. And the chapter 7 ends with Israel has peace. Samuel was their judge and Israel has peace on all sides. But then you come to chapter 8. Chapter 8 is a pivotal chapter in Israel's history. The people see that Samuel is now old. And his sons don't walk in his ways. They're running after dishonest gain and taking bribes. And they say, this isn't going to work. Samuel, we need a king. The text is pretty clear that this displeased Samuel, so he goes to take this news to God and say, God, they want a king. And God says, Samuel, it's not you they're rejecting. It's me. But give them what they want. Give them a king like all the other nations have, but warn them first. So Samuel warns him and says, he's going to take this new king that you want, this king like all the other nations, he's going to be a taker. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take taxes. He's going to take your best fields, your best vineyards. He's going to take and take and take. But the people say, that's okay. We want a king. 
We want a king who's going to judge us, a king who's going to lead us in battle. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Think for just a second about what a transition between this kind of government that the people of Israel have been living under for hundreds of years, this system of judges, they're transitioning from that to a monarchy. Think about all the kind of social and political upheavals that would mean. I mean, when nation states transition from monarchy to democracy or democracy to a totalitarian regime, it's never clean and neat. It's messy. What would it have been like in Israel at that time? You know, the text doesn't tell us at all. No kind of peering into the social or political, political life of Israel. You just get a theological interpretation of what's happening. That's what the author wants us to see. This is a rejection of God. Now, I think we need to be absolutely clear for a second here. The desire for a king wasn't necessarily, in and of itself, bad. God had promised Israel way, way, way back when he was dealing with Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, that one day they would have a king. He tells Abraham, from you nations are going to come and kings are going to come up from among your people. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 17, he lays down stipulations and requirements. When you choose a king for yourself, this is what he should look like. He, he shouldn't be a foreigner, make sure he's an Israelite. He shouldn't be a, a, a guy who's going to take a lot of other wives for himself. He should be someone who knows the law and, and follows the law. So the desire for a king wasn't necessarily bad. But what we have here is different. The, the people weren't saying, God, give us what you promised. They were demanding, give us what the other nations have. You see that especially in verse 19. The people refused to listen to Samuel and said, no, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. This was a rejection of God and his kingship. And it involves three different things. First, they were rejecting God as their judge. The NIV here that we read says, we want someone, a king to lead us. The word should probably be interpreted to judge us. To lead in the administration of justice. We want a king who will administer justice for us as a nation. But isn't that incredibly puzzling? Hadn't God been doing that all along? God had laid down just laws for them. He had instituted a system that justice would through which justice would be administrated. If you're wronged, here's the law, here's how you apply the law. And when they needed help, he had raised up judges to officiate. God was providing this for them already, but they rejected it. They said, no, we don't want God to be our judge. We want a human, a man king, to be our judge and administrate justice. They were also rejecting God as their warrior king. They said, we want someone who is going to go out and lead the vanguard, go out and be at the forefront of the battle, lead us 
on the battlefield. But again, hadn't God been doing this all along? Hadn't he been right there protecting them from the advancing armies of Egypt, defeating them with the Red Sea? He had protected them in miraculous ways as they were this pilgrim wandering people in the wilderness. And when they went into the promised land, he brought down a fortified city with a trumpet blast and a shout from the people. He was their warrior king. He had defeated the Midianites with Gideon and this small band of a couple hundred warriors armed with lamps and clay pots. God was their warrior king. But they decided, following this invisible warrior king, this invisible God, this is hard. Going into battle armed with faith and prayer, that's dangerous. That's scary. We want a physical, tangible king who wears armor. They are rejecting God as their judge, rejecting rejecting him as their warrior king, and rejecting God's purpose for them as a nation. From the beginning, God had said you were to be a nation unlike all the other nations. When he made this covenant with Abraham, he said, Abraham, I'm going to establish you. I'm going to make you a great nation, and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You're to be unlike everyone else. Exodus 19, in Israel's kind of constitution, he says, you're to be a holy people for me. Holy means separate, set apart, cut off from the rest. You're to be my possession. You're to be different. Deuteronomy 4, God says, walk in my ways so that other nations will look at you and say, what a great and wise nation. What nation is there like Israel whose God is so close to them that he answers when they call? He was saying, you're to be different. And through that difference, people will be intrigued. And they'll say, what kind of nation is this? And what kind of God do they serve? You can keep going. Leviticus 18, God says, do not do as the Egyptians. Do not do as the Canaanites. Be different. Be distinct. But here the people of Israel were rejecting that. They were rejecting their very reason for existing saying, no, we want to be like, not to be different from. How does God respond? He gives them what they demand. Now, I think somewhere in here, there's this cautionary tale about, be careful what you ask for God. You might just get it. We so often think of unanswered prayers as a sign of God's displeasure. Here it was an answered prayer that was, a design, that was a sign of God's displeasure. Sometimes God refuses to give you what you want out of his mercy, out of his grace. Think about the Apostle Paul who prayed repeatedly, remove this thorn from my side. God didn't answer that prayer. Not with the, yes, I'll take it away at least. But it was mercy to Paul. Here, God answers the people's cry. He answers their demand, their prayer. But it was a sign of his displeasure, of his anger. God 
gives them what they want. He, he allows their choice. He allows them to reject him. Yet, despite this, God does not reject them. That is amazing to me. It's amazing that the Bible doesn't end right here with 1 Samuel 8. That the story of Israel and God doesn't just end right here. I mean, if it was me, it would, right? If it was you, it would. After all we've done for you, we've cared for you, we've protected you, God could say, I created you from nothing, Israel, and now you turn your back on me, you reject me. Again, me, you, done. But not God. God is faithful to his promises despite their faith fail. He even continues to work through this monarchy that they have sinfully established. He works through Saul to accomplish his purposes. He he raises up David. And through all of this, all of Israel's kings, the good as much as the bad, he's pointing ahead. They all serve as a shadowy reflection of the true king, a dim foreshadowing of the king of kings. Eventually, God was going to send a king to Israel, a king that would be a perfect king, that would meet all of his requirements that he laid down in Deuteronomy 17, a king that would be so unlike all the kings of the nations. This points us to Christ. And when you hold up the kind of king that Christ is versus the kind of king that Israel was wanting, a king like all the other nations, the contrast couldn't be any more stark. Six times in Saul's words, I'm sorry, Samuel's words to the people, the word take shows up. He's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take, 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 and take. What about Jesus? Jesus says, anyone who comes after me, if you've lost mother or father or son or daughter or brother or sister or house for my name or the sake of the gospel, I'm going to give you back a hundredfold. Not only in this life, but in the life to come. I give, not take. Samuel had said, you will all end up as slaves to this king you choose. But Jesus comes not to enslave, but to give life. And to give freedom. So the New Testament can say, if you have been set free by the Son, you are free indeed. The burden from this earthly king, this man king that they were choosing, is going to be a heavy, hard burden. But Jesus says, my yoke, my yoke is easy. They wanted a king who would judge and reward, but the kings of Israel show that it's just a corrupt kingship. Jesus comes and he rewards faithfully and he judges faithfully. He is the perfect king. But yet again, he was rejected. This perfect king was rejected by his people and shown to be not only the perfect king but the suffering servant king. This perfect king was rejected and that reject him, that rejection led him to the cross where he would fight the cosmic battle of the ages for his people. He would fight and win the most important battle by dying for his people. This is an ancient story. 
an ancient story that, that points ahead to Christ. And it is an ancient story with contemporary truths for us to learn. Because like Israel, we live in a kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom, but it is a kingdom, a real kingdom. And it's a theocracy, just as much as Israel ever was. We live under the lordship, under the kingship of Jesus. And like Israel, sometimes our faith fails. Sometimes we're tempted to throw off the lordship of Christ and declare our own autonomy or erect a king in Christ's place. Sometimes our our faith fails due to fear. You see that in this passage. The people were properly concerned about the leadership vacuum that was going to develop when Samuel died. His sons were not following in his way. There's a proper concern there, but they allowed that concern to turn into fear, and their fear swallowed up their faith. And it led to an incredibly poor decision. It was an incredibly short-sighted decision, too. I mean, think about it. You know, they thought, okay, this hereditary judge thing, that, that's not working out. Samuel's kids aren't following in his ways. We don't want them to be judged. So in its place, let's put in a hereditary monarchy. That'll work better. It was a poor decision because their fear trumped their faith. Don't you see that in the church a lot? The church, the body of Christ. We can look out at our world And there's a lot of things to be properly concerned about. A lot of things in our culture, in our nation, in our world to be properly concerned about. But we can allow that concern to turn into fear and to overwhelm our faith. And then we act out of fear. We do do stupid things like try to seize political power because it's hard to follow an invisible king. We want a political party to align with. It's a faith fail. I know of examples in my own life. I mean, there's a lot of things as a parent that concern me about our culture. And it's really, really tempting sometimes to say, God, I know you're in control, but I need to control. I need to have my hands on this. I need it to come out the way I want it to come out. I'm going to shape and control my kids. You could go down the list. Marriage, job, careers. Difficult sometimes. Proper concern can lead to fear that overwhelms faith. The key to fighting this fear is remembering. Had Israel just remembered for a minute how faithful God had been in the past? I mean, this wasn't a new situation for them. Saul's, uh, Samuel's sons not following after him. It had happened just a generation before. Eli was judge. His sons were wicked. But God intervened. He literally took out Eli's sons and put Samuel in their place. Why didn't they just remember that and have faith? Or you could go back to Moses, uh, the best leader Israel ever had. And when he was about to die, huge leadership vacuum, but God raised up Joshua. Remembering helps us overcome that fear. 
Remember all the times that God has provided for you. Keep a a mental bank of all those that you can draw upon. Remember, dwell on all God's promises and especially his provision for you on the cross. There he stepped in and met your greatest need. The Bible says if he's already done that, won't he give you everything else you need for life and for godliness too? Sometimes our, our faith fails because of a lack of patience. We want it now. Israel wasn't going to wait for God's timing to bring the king onto the scene. They wanted their king and they wanted him now. That's a huge struggle for me. I'm not known in my house as a very patient man. Uh, my wife is, is very, very verbal, and I'm not. And one time she was unloading on me about her day. And I actually said to her, is there a point to the story coming anytime soon? (laughs) Wrong thing to say, right? You know that. But I'm not very patient. It's hard for me to let my kids do in five minutes what would take me five seconds to do. Whether it's tie their shoe or do something on the computer. I just want to step in and do it. And sometimes I want to do that to God, too. I I look ahead, and faith tells me God's going to bless. God's going to do something. He's going to be faithful. And I look ahead a month, two months, a year, five years, and I don't see it. God, where's this plan leading? Okay, God, I'll do it. The key to overcoming that is developing an eternal perspective. God says, you're looking out five years? You're looking out 20 years? You need to get you some faith binoculars and look out way beyond that. This is an eternal plan I'm working out. I'm working everything for your eternal good. Develop an eternal perspective. Don't be impatient. Sometimes our faith fails because we want to be like the world. I mean, point blank, that's what Israel's problem was, right? They didn't trust God's plan. They wanted to be like everyone else. Now, I know that's true on the personal level. We weigh in the balances spiritual rewards, delayed gratification, versus what fun we see the world having. And that can be a real challenge to our faith. It's a challenge to the church of Christ also. Sometimes I think we baptize this desire to be like the world with the word relevant. We want to be relevant, to be current. This week there was a a great article online. Ten reasons our kids leave the church. Reason number ten, the church is relevant. He goes on, he says, you didn't misread that. I didn't say irrelevant. I said relevant. We've taken his a historic 2,000-year-old faith, dressed it up in plaid and skinny jeans, and tried to sell it as cool to our kids. It's not cool. It's not modern. What we're packaging is a cheap knockoff of the world we're we're called to evangelize. He goes on, we're like fawning wannabes, just hoping the world will will think we're cool, you know, just like they are. Our kids meet the real world And our, look, we're cool like you, posing, is mocked. 
In our effort to be like them, we've become less of who we actually are. The middle-aged pastor trying to look like, he's, like his 20-something audience isn't relevant. Dress him up in skinny jeans and hand him a latte, it doesn't matter. It's not relevant, it's comically cliché. The minute you aim at being authentic or relevant, you're no longer authentic or relevant. So based on that, we made Bob take back his skinny jeans. (laughs) Now there comes a point, though. We're trying to be like the world to win the world is counterproductive. God didn't say be like the world to win the world. He said be holy. He said that to Israel. He says it to us. Be different. Be distinct. You don't have to wear culottes to be different and distinct, but you do have to stand out. The world has to see that there's something unique about you, and they will be drawn to you and through you to your God. Don't be afraid of that. Don't let your desire to be like the world overwhelm your faith. The key here is trusting God's means to accomplish God's mission. He didn't give the church skinny jeans and lattes. He gave them the preaching of the word. He gave them things like the sacraments. He gave them things as mundane as discipleship and sharing life together. He says that is how you will change everything. Faith is hard. And sometimes our faith fails. But God is still that faithful God he's always been. That maybe you've spent your entire life living under the tyrannical king called self. Maybe you've never submitted your life to King Jesus. What this passage calls you to do is lift up your eyes from the world around you and set it firmly on the heavenly throne and bend the knee. There's two ways to live life with that tyrannical king called self or some other cheap imposter on the throne. That way leads to destruction. The other way is affirming and submitting to the Lord Christ. That way leads to life, to wholeness, to peace. That way leads to God. Maybe you've wrestled the reins of your life away from the Lord because you're fearful or impatient or you just want to be like the world. This passage calls us to repent and to submit again to the Lord Christ, to our heavenly King. If you'd like to talk more about what that looks like in your life, I would love the opportunity to either after the service or sometime through the week to sit down and have coffee to chat about what it means to submit to Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, to trust him to fight your battle for you and to bring victory over sin and death. Please know that no choice, no matter how poor, no matter how fear-based or impatient, no choice puts us beyond the reach of God's grace. This story reminds us of that. Though Israel's faith failed, though our faith fails over and over again, God remains faithful. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so, so grateful 
that your grace, that your faithfulness to us does not depend on our ability to follow well. If that were the case, we would be lost from day one. You remain faithful to your promises through our sin, through our rebellion. We pray that you would do a work in our hearts, circumcise our hearts, and help them be set apart for you only. Father, we pray that your spirit would be active among us now, convicting of those places where we have seized control of our own lives and refused to be faithful people. We pray that you would grant us the humility and the repentance. In Jesus' precious name, amen.